Welcome to episode 98 of Destination Linux. This is a podcast of opinions made up of three allegedly intelligent guys discussing a passion for Linux. I'm Zeb, and with me today are my three friends. Michael, how are you this week? I'm actually doing a lot better than I was. Um, not as ridiculously sick as I used I was last week, last week, so that's great. Yep, good to hear. And Ryan, how are you? Now I'm sick. Thanks a lot to you two, because it's your fault. It's through osmosis. And, yeah, through osmosis. And uh, But I'm doing all right. We're, we're packing up, still getting ready for the move. Good, good, good. And last but not least, Noah, how are you? Hope you're not getting a sickness bug. I, I am getting sick, although unlike those two guys, I didn't get it from osmosis. My sickness was transmitted via TCP IP. <laughs> nice. Well played, sir. Well played. So, Ryan, what have you been up to this week? Well, you know I'm moving, so most of my time that I would usually be messing with some new Linux project has been spent uh, moving and packing up. But I did a poll in my community for my YouTube channel and asked, what video do you guys want to see most? And the number one response was the UB ports Ubuntu touch phone. Can I utilize it full time? That was overwhelmingly what people want to see. So I've been spending more time with this device and getting ready to do that video, but to make it a full experience, because I don't want to go in there and just talk about, yeah, I can make phone calls and yeah, I can do text messaging. I want to also put my work on this as well. That means connecting to exchange servers. That means being able to get my work email. That means really using this full time as my device. So that's what I've been doing so I can get a good video on that and a little bit of a hint is I am shocked at how many things they've been able to incorporate in this device to make it so that you can use it full time. I'm blown away by it, honestly, the work that they've done. It's interesting how they did it. We'll get into it in the video when I do that. So that's what I've been up to. Nice. nice. Um, and Michael, you're always up to something and it's normally to do with OBS and all sorts of other <laughs> Yep. stuff so what have you been doing this week uh, i've been making a lot of new stuff uh, actually i did some i did do some obs stuff i made some nice uh updates to the way the layouts work and i made a layout for the when liam later in the show uh, we have five cameras because liam's joining us for t- talk about gaming on linux and i also did a ton of updates to the website make a new home page uh I, I created an episode archive, so if you've only, you know, if you recently started watching, you can you can go back and check out any of the episodes that we've ever done, or any of the. There's also like a filter system for the eras of like the different hosts, the part of the show, and things like that. Um, there's tons of different things that I did for the website, and I also designed a new intro for the this episode actually. So uh, when you, if you've already seen it, but that's brand new to this episode and. It's one of my, well, I, I really like the the new intro because one, it's really, I think it's nice. And two, it's really quick for me to make it because I did like this pre-render type thing. And uh, I'm so happy the fact that I'm p- potentially maybe making it possible to be on time with the release. No, we don't believe that. Wow. Yeah. Right? <laughs> we'll, we'll believe that when it happens. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Noah, sort of last but not least, as always, and I do apologize for leaving you out the intro, but it's obvious that you're, there's nothing alleged about your intelligence at all. So I can't really accuse you of being semi-intelligent. Um, but we missed you from last week. So what, what trouble have you been getting into? 
Yeah, appreciate. Uh, sorry for uh, for not being here. I was I was called away on a little bit of a, a work emergency, as it were. But uh, yeah, so we're we're actually being contracted to do some video production, and so what we're doing is we have we've set up it's a four camera shoot that we shot um, all four of the from all four camera angles. Now we've brought that back in in post, and of course, doing this all under Linux, we are going to reproduce the show and switch it as it were as if it were live except all of the camera sources are have already been recorded and uh, and that's going to go out then as a as a production that this this client that has hired us is is going to sell so it's been kind of an interesting process i've 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 played with individual technologies before but i've we've never actually brought them all together where we have we've done all of this on linux so it's interesting kind of being able to go and produce a live event in post Mm -hmm. And did anything trip you up? Was there anything that you thought, oh, I wish we'd have done that slightly differently? Yeah. uh, What I would tell anybody that's doing this, if you're going to do, if you're going to do it, what I would say is if you can arrange it, use all of the same camera models. Because one of the things is even though we tried to match white balance and settings and stuff like that, what we're finding is that there are certain shots that we like the picture quality better, even if we don't like the angle better. And so uh, if I had it to do over again, I would probably use all of the same camera model. But other than that, the Linux part, the software side, the open source side has been absolutely fantastic. The fact that this technology exists on Linux, and I'm not sure if there's another platform that you can do what we're doing uh, to the level that we're doing it. So I, I, it's, I think video production on Linux has come a very long way. It's, it's been really exciting to see firsthand. Oh, yeah. Nice. Cool. So, Michael, on to my favourite section of the show, or almost my favourite section. Gaming obviously comes first, Ryan. But, uh, Michael, tell us about our email this week, please. Yep, absolutely. We got an, an e- email from Brian, and it's a really interesting thing. I like how he specifically mentions me and not telling me to make sure that people didn't tell me that this, he agrees with me. So I'm, it's interesting that you decided to have me read it. Um, so... <laughs> So it says, uh, I'm usually just a lurker, but the conversation after the letter in episode 96 calls me to step out of the shadows. Don't tell Michael, but I have to agree with him. <laughs> I have you reading it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in the late 90s and early 2000s, I taught an intro class to Linux at a local college uh, using Mandrake. And it says my philosophy for that class was very similar to Michael's comments. Again, don't tell him. If he, if he gets the big head, his hair just won't look right. Maybe. This maybe. <laughs> Uh, it says the very first class is he let the students go through the install that included X so they could play with it and kind of like, use the system and also play a game called uh, Frozen Bubble. Uh, the very next class, uh, we, we they blew that away and with the, they started installing a new one, and that one didn't have X at all. And from then, they every until the last two weeks, it says uh, they, they only learn from the console. So they get the, the experience of trying it first with the full system and they kind of pull back and, you know, keep going until they get to the point where it's like, you're just doing the terminal stuff. And uh, that's a, a really interesting approach. And that's, that's pretty much what I would say is the best approach is because you're going to do, I mean, he kind of agrees with that's whatever, but uh, it's a, uh, it's a good approach because you, if you want someone to learn, it's, it's better to let them know that they're not just having to do this. This is like, here's this really cool interface and this really nice system and here's how that system works. And I think that would be a much, mm-hmm. you know, gradual uh, system for or a, a method or approach to teach people how to use it. And I think, I think that's the, I think that's the takeaway from this is because uh, we were talking about how, you know, how to make it not, not the scary, make it the terminal, not scary. And I think the approach of, you know, not making the terminal first thing they see 
is probably the best mm-hmm. option. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, he also said in there, which somehow you just overlooked there, that with that said, I have to agree with Ryan's point. You missed that whole sentence there, Michael. I'm not sure why, but I'll go ahead and cover it for no, you. No, I didn't. I didn't miss that. I skipped it on purpose. <laughs> he just hasn't got to that yet. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Brian, for your email. Um, and it's interesting that although I hadn't thought about it before, this is exactly what we used to do at one of the old companies I worked on with our old Unix box. We used to get new members of staff in and we would show them how to run the scripts every morning that you had to do. And there were 15, 20, maybe 30 commands that they would have to laboriously have to go through copying files across. And then once they got used to that and they said, oh, well, by the way, you could also just run this command and it does it all for you. And they all used to go mad that we just wasted three, four <laughs> weeks of their life. And I said, okay, you come in tomorrow and that script doesn't work. Do you know where it has failed? Yes, because you used to run the steps individually. Right. So that type of method of training has, has its purpose. So, yeah, it, it, it's all good. That's a good point. And that's why we like these emails to keep coming in, because different people have a different view on how they use Linux, why they use Linux, um, and the way they use Linux. So please keep sending us in your emails to comments at destinationlinux.org. All right, so first up in our news, one of my favorite operating systems, especially for my kids, which is Raspbian OS, has some new updates. Now, my son loves his Raspbian OS on his little laptop and somehow has come up with this theory that he's actually, in his imagination, created a hacker named PZ1 that he wants to go hack. And he, when we run the update command and it scrolls through our upgrade command, you know, when the new release comes out, I tell him he's mm-hmm. hacking PZ1 and he's beating them and he's seeing all the scrolling and he gets super excited <laughs> as a five-year-old uh, that he's hacking PZ1, this imaginary hacker. But in any case, Raspbian OS is amazing because it runs, it's super light and can run on very, very old hardware and is very simple layout uh, as well for anybody to get used to Linux in. But they have the new update and one of the big things they're doing here really is with the media player Uh, they finally are coupling it with the media player and that's going to be VLC uh, is the media player of choice. Now I wasn't super excited about that because I've had nothing but issues with VLC. It seems like the last few times that I've tried it and it's just kind of not been working really well. Do you mean in general or on In general. In general, VLC has just not been playing you know, there's stuttering in the in the videos or will only play audio and not the video. Sometimes even it's so bad that I think when I've recorded a video, I've recorded it like, and I'm playing it or editing it in Caden Live, and it just shows up <clears throat> as blank that uh, it's some type of issue uh, with the recording that I did when in fact it's just that VLC is not playing it. So then I mm-hmm. open the video in uh, SM player and it shows fine and the audio is fine and all that stuff. So I've had a lot of issues with VLC, but in any case, I know a lot of people love it. I used to love it, and it's a very popular choice. So at least it's shipping with the media player uh, by default. Yeah. Of course, it's Linux, so you can put whatever one you want on there. Well, they didn't have so one thought, before. It's just didn't. Is that right? I mean, I think they, I think they didn't have correct. one at all. Yeah, that's correct. Um, yep. But it's it's really nice they did the whole hardware decoding and stuff for the the, the hardware that's a part of the Raspberry Pi now in VLC uh, because the VLC didn't used to have that, and now that they do. Uh, it's, it, I like the fact that they are, 
uh, putting effort into making it possible to have a media player on the Raspberry Pi, uh, more so than just like Cody. Like, a, like if, if you wanted to use your like the entire Pi, all it does is Cody. It will work great for that, uh, and Cody will pe- play pretty much everything. Uh, but it only basically does just Cody and just media playing playing and stuff. So you know, you if you wanted and it, to, and it does struggle a little bit with Blu-rays. Yeah, it, it depends on. Yeah, if you have like the latest, the latest one, or the, not the not the late technically not the latest one, but the most powerful Raspberry Pi will probably have. Uh, it probably could do a little bit of Blu-ray depending on if you like. You might have to transcode a little bit though. Uh, no, I I I've done it without transcoding. The so the three I have the three. I don't know what the what the quote unquote latest version is, but the, with the three, it will play a Blu-ray. Um, it just every once in a great while it will stutter just a little bit and it takes it buffers quite a bit before it actually starts playing the movie. It works. It just it's a very slow interface. Hmm. But uh, but overall, I agree with you. It's it's fantastic. And then you pair it with the Flurk. If you're not familiar with the Flurk, it's yeah. basically a little IR USB receiver that you so you can use a regular remote and. Yeah, I've not heard of this. The flirt, yeah, so yeah, the yeah flirt. it's fantastic. It's like a twenty dollars device, Ryan. And you uh, you buy it off of Amazon. Um, Amazon comes, you know, Prime eligible. You plug it into the Raspberry Pi, and then you can use a, a regular uh, TV remote. And so I I've got one in my in in our camper actually of all places. I've got a little Raspberry Pi three with uh, that's connected to an external hard drive, and I've got a uh, Cody on it. And I use the Flirk so that my kids can use the exact same universal remote that we have in our house inside of our camper and they actually have one in our suburban too, a little flip down tv with the raspberry pi 3 it's fantastic little that device. so awesome mm-hmm. i didn't yeah, know that really existed cool. it's like yeah, a, yeah, it's it's like a like usb device, device thing it's awesome mm-hmm. and they also uh make their own case like the same people who make the flurk make a case that's really slick looking the best case it's yeah. the only case i'll buy for the raspberry pi 3 it's like uh, aluminum basically if you think like if apple made a case for raspberry pi that's what it would look like oh yeah nice. it's very nice very and cool. how are you spelling that? Is that F L E R K? F L I R C. I R Oh, I R C. Yeah. Oh, okay. Have to take a look at that for mine. Very cool. Slacks 9.6.0 is released. So this was really cool. I had I have not played with Slacks previously to uh, to covering it this week, and so uh, I went and checked it out. And one of the things that immediately appealed to me is that it looks like it, it is literally designed to run on anything at any time because it runs off of a USB flash drive. So it's a very low resource distribution that you can run on practically anything from your USB flash drive. Now, when you boot into it, it runs on Fluxbox VM uh, as the desktop environment. And um, the, the interesting thing about Slacks is it was originally based on Slackware. Now it's actually based on Debian. So this version, which is 9.6.0, uh, it now has updated for all included packages. It fixes the PXE boot option. Now, I don't have a uh, a, PX, uh, a Pixie server at the moment, so I wasn't actually able to test it. But they include a PXE script that uh, that you can execute uh, to start a Pixie server, and it will automatically assign a random IP address uh, on the uh, on the 10.0 range. So a uh, pretty cool little distribution. I actually replaced my goat. I have a little. Uh, uh, SanDisk flash drive that I carry with me that always has a Linux distribution on it. So if I'm sitting down at a public computer or something like that, I can use a, a distribution or a, an operating system that has all of my data and it's configured the way that I want it. Actually, this week I switched to Slacks. So we're going to give that a nice. shot. Yeah, nice. we're going to give that a shot for the next couple of weeks. But one of the things I like is, like I say, I, I tried it on, on a bunch of different machines and uh, super, super responsive, even off of a flash drive, um, because they essentially designed it that way so that that I guess that idea of that Linux that you can run anywhere on anything has has really 
appeal to me. I think it's a I think it's a, a niche that I've always kind of wanted mm-hmm. and uh, not really had. It's cool because it's kind of like a, a modern day type approach of like Debian style of puppy. So it's it's kind of like right. like just a full uh, full system on a USB and the persistent the persistence that you can have for it is really nice too. Cause that's, I know it's in a lot of times it's really difficult to set that up depending on the distro. And the fact that they put that as part of their main feature set is really cool. Did any of you guys play with Knopix or Knopix or however you pronounced yeah. it? Yeah. Knopix. Yeah. Knopix. So that, that was really what it kind of reminded me of was that, that full featured designed around running off of a flash drive system. But you know, I could actually see a lot of other uses for, for slacks. I could see it running on those, what I call utility machines. Mm -hmm. Like you need a machine, you need somewhere you want a presence into a client network. And so you've got an old machine that you're repurposing, man. And you know, it's funny when, when I went to download, it was, um, it was either in the installer on their webpage. It says something to the effect of the distribution that has the only two things that you always need a web browser and a terminal. I was like, (laughs) Someone's talking to me. That's, you know, so, you know, it, that, that's true, though. You know how many times do we have a client that we, we have an extra machine and we have to repurpose? And I literally need two things. I need a terminal and I need a web browser. And so to have a distribution that focuses heavily on those two things and just has them work right out of the box that will run on anything, it's hugely advantageous. Yeah. I also like the fact that it's uh, it's very uh, beneficial for like an appliance distro if you wanted to do it for if it's very since it's very minimal because you use a flux box it'll be it, it you can use it where you have a like the basic system that's bootable and then have devote like 99% of your resources to a you know a, a specific application like if uh, exactly I, I think i might try like trying it out and see if it might be a good option for a stream machine so we'll see about that but uh, also uh, deepin 15.8 was released this week and there's deepin has some interesting things that they have coming out in this latest release. Um, they have a new grub theme that you, so you can have like their, their, uh, deep in style, even on the boots, the boot splash and things like that. And, uh, they have a new, uh, layout for like more of a efficiency layout thing where it'll adjust depending on the display resolution, kind of like a responsive mode. Uh, and they also have like some new auto brightness and transparency settings and stuff like that. Um, what I think is really interesting is that, um, they're doing a full disk encryption now. Um, I'm not sure if it's by default, but it's definitely available now. And uh, that's that's a problem. That's probably something that um, a lot of people would be interested in doing. And uh, the dock tray feature is um, that's that's an interesting thing. Tell us about that, Ryan. Well, the new dock tray feature basically lets you have a dock can be set in a Mac OS style with toggles. Uh, on it. So if you're familiar, if you're, maybe if you're moving somebody from a Mac and you want that familiarity, uh, they have that there. They also had a Windows style dock option as well that you could toggle in there, which I was like, Windows has mean? a dock. Yeah, what does that mean? Yeah, it was Windows <laughs> has a dock. But so they didn't have a picture of that one. But I did try to download Deepin 15.8. And I guess I made the mistake of just going to their website and downloading because it said it would take <laughs> three and a half days. Well, I let it run for three. I, I let it run, but it looks like it failed at some point at 4 a.m. and never finished, so I never got to try it out. I um, need to do a find a torrent or something. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is I'm going to guess I have to go out there and find a torrent from it because it's very difficult to get your hands on this, I guess, because the servers are all the way in China, right? right. Uh, would be where they're at. Yeah. So it looks like they have a lot of neat features. The one thing that stood out to me, I'm not a huge Deepin fan, but I always say that it to me it's one of the most promising as far as the beauty and the layout of their desktop goes. 
Although within there, there was a lot of missing issues with the efficiency of their settings and tool menus that this version's working on. And that made me very happy that they're focusing more on polish, which I think is what Deepin needs at this point, versus trying to add in a whole bunch of brand new features and things like that. Um, because I think that would make it more popular as well as probably doing something as we've mentioned in prior episodes with their app store, because there's, you know, there's still some controversy around the way they have their app store set up. Yeah. They removed um, that part though. Oh, they did. Mm-hmm. They, nice. they removed the, from the, the app store itself, uh, from the, the default, uh, they still have it on their website, but they removed the analytics thing. Uh, some people said that it's, uh, that people have exaggerated what that is. Um, it's not like, it's not a spyware type thing. Uh, but it is very weird that it's in by default on software center that loads immediately. So, uh, it is definitely something that they, you know, they responded to, uh, in a, in a way that's respectful, respectable. And the sense that they were like, Oh, we see what your, what the problem is now. We'll go ahead and remove that. And I appreciate that kind of thing. Um, yeah, but I do think that there's some other things that, uh, deepen is a very beautiful looking distribution. I have to agree with that. Uh, I'm curious though is if you change things, will it obey what you tell it to do? <laughs> well, we would have to be able to download it to know. That's true. And so I'm going to have to find a torrent to uh, check that out. That was <laughs> an issue true. we were having last time, right? You yeah. would toggle stuff and it wouldn't do it. Yeah, and, it, and, it's, and it's, it's exactly the same in this particular release. The deep-in products themselves don't obey any um, new layer or new um, icon set or theme or whatever that you put on there. They just stay as they intended them to be. So it still has that, that glitch, which is frustrating if you don't want to run it in, in its native mode. So on to some Red Hat news now, and it will probably please everybody that after the um, purchase of Red Hat by IBM, that they are still carrying on with business as usual. Um, and they've now got a beta version of the Enterprise version 8. Um, so it's been four years since they released version 7, which brought improved Windows interoperability, better virtual support, etc., etc. And now with version 8, we're seeing the move towards cloud and container-based IT world. This version will share a lot with the Fedora 28 release, and utilize upstream kernel 4.18. Now they go on to uh, list a whole raft of other um, improvements that they're going to be bringing out, improved security on OpenSSL and TLS. Um, The YUM package manager has finally been updated. It is now based upon the next-gen DNF. But the difficult thing I've got with something like um, Red Hat Enterprise is I've never tried to download it because it's a product that you have to purchase mm-hmm. so do they have the option for you to download it and utilize it for mm. a few days before you have to start or is it just yeah. support trial yes yet yeah, no actually it's not entirely true so yes you can do a trial and then you can use it for however many days uh, full featured all that however they actually have uh, and i forget the exact name but it's like the red hat developer edition or something like that and you can get a full red hat license obviously you don't get the support with it but you get the full uh, access to all of the Red Hat stuff, and you can download all of the updates and use all of the repos. It doesn't cost anything. You just have to register for their – I'll, I'll look up the name, and I'll send it to you. Maybe we can include it in mm-hmm. the show notes. But 
something like that. Sure. Um, but yes, there is a way that you can play with the absolute full up-to-date version uh, without having to pay for it. Now, what nice. would be the advantage for that, Noah, in using Red Hat versus a CentOS or a Fedora? If you, is there any reason why you would want to? No. Uh, well, not really. Uh, the The reason that they offer it is that they want to they want to allow developers to get involved with the distribution. They want to allow the ability to download and test and stuff in your environment, and then hopefully you actually pay for a Red Hat subscription. But if you're never going to pay for the support, it doesn't really. The only thing you're getting for the only difference really between Red Hat and CentOS is that the packages are available just a little bit sooner and the security fixes are available a little bit sooner. And then obviously the huge advantage is that you get the support, but CentOS is binarily identical to Red Hat. All they've done is stripped out all of the Red Hat um, proprietary logos and stuff like that and replaced them Mm -hmm. with CentOS. The code is the exact same. In fact, if you go to a Red Hat training center or, or you, you deal with Red Hat training instructors, they'll, a lot of times, they'll train you on CentOS or they'll send you home with a version of CentOS. You don't even train on actual Red Hat because they're identical. There is literally no advantage to one over the other. Mm-hmm. By the way, and not, uh, Zeb, I don't want to, I don't want to interrupt, but uh, are we going to talk about application streaming at all for, for uh, version 8? Yeah, you can do, yeah. So this is this is really cool. One of the things that Red Hat has done in version 8 and that we're going to use the absolute heck of because it, it is so cool, they're going to a model called application streaming. And so essentially the way this works is they're going to divide the repos into three different versions. And it's um, doing this all of my memory, so I apologize. But it's like base, which is all of the packages that you expect from the distribution that Red Hat can officially support 100% out of the box, no problem. Then there is what is the replacement of the like uh, extra repo, which has like all of the other software that everybody basically is going to want to have, but Red Hat doesn't officially want to support. And and again, don't quote me exactly on how these are divided up because I'm not going off of notes or anything. I'm just kind of going off of my memory when I was playing with it. Um, and then there is a third repository, which is all of the special license stuff, the stuff that they can't legally include or, 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 or work with. And so you have to have some sort of special license, like Skype would be a good example that has you have your own agreement with Microsoft and stuff like that. And so Red Hat can't distribute that. Um, and so they have a third repo for all of, all of those kinds of things. The nice thing about uh, application streaming is that you can have multiple versions from the same physical repo source. So for example, if you want to try the, if you're like PHP is a very common example. When I, as a system administrator, when I work with uh, web developers and they're going to put up Mm -hmm. a site, we've got a client that's doing this right now. They'll say, well, we need to run this version of PHP, not this version of PHP. Well, in CentOS 7 or Red Hat 7, what that would have been is, well, we had to go to a different repository and add that and then install that software source. Well, now with application streaming, what they're going to allow you to do is you can basically tell it, here is the PHP Red Hat repo where we all agree this is where the versions of the code that we're all going to use are. And you can choose, I want five point whatever, Mike, I'm sure you would know the exact yeah, you can choose, but they'll all come from that exact same repo source. Very so the cool. nice thing about that is when we go to do an upgrade and all of a sudden now, and we dealt with this with a, um, with a, uh, a database issue, we upgraded all of the, data, the database stuff, but the database software that they were using required a newer version of PHP, but the version of CentOS that we were stuck on had 
it offered one version of the database software, but a different version of the PHP. And so the new one wasn't compatible. It was a huge mess. This solves all of that because now the application stream will say, okay, you pick which version of PHP you want. Okay, you pick which version of database you want and you just mix mash them up depending on your environment. So yeah. it's a really, really cool solution and something that I'm not seeing anywhere else in the industry. That's actually really, nice. it is really cool. There's, there's, I used to have to do uh, compiling the spe specific version of PHP right. that I need to run. And it's like, yep. it, it is the most torturous thing to possibly do for a server when you do web server stuff, because uh, PHP, when they, when they update, they do big updates and there are some like compatibility issues between like five and seven. Uh, but, mm -hmm. and seven is so much more uh, efficient and responsive that you, you, it makes sense to do seven. Uh, but people still right. use 5.6 for some, you know, some reasons. So it makes sense like mm -hmm. to have the option to do either one and the app streams. I'm, I'm curious, do you know if the apps, the app streams are um, connected to the Fedora 29 or the Fedora 28, like modularity thing they're working on? No, I don't believe so. I think that's separate. Okay. I believe I could be wrong. Again, a lot of this is like, understand that, when we're talking about Red Hat 8 coming out, it's in beta right now. So it's not, you know, it's it's not fully baked. And then on top mm -hmm. of that, there isn't a lot of, obviously there's not a lot of real world production value in any of this. I shouldn't say production value, but there is not a lot of real world production experience with this because nobody is rolling this out yet. And yeah. so everything that we're talking about and all of this discussion is all either hypothetical or based on the best documentation that we have available at the moment, which is somewhat sparse other than press releases. Right. So mm -hmm. might be, can, I'm not saying that for sure. I just, to the best of my knowledge, those are two separate things. Okay. I was just curious. Yep. So generically, how long do SensorOS, SensorOS users have to wait for these new Red Hat features to come through? Is it a couple of months after the final release when they've been yeah. able to change it or? Days. You were oh, really? Yeah, we're talking days. It's not It's not a significant time. It, literally, what it is, is Red Hat writes the code for, like, let's say there's a security update. They write the code, they push that out to the uh, to their, their systems or whatever. Somebody else then has to go back and look and say, oh, look, Red Hat made this get push to their repository. Hey, we should also include that change in CentOS. And so they fork it over and then integrate it into their code. But it, we're not talking about months or years, but yeah, I mean, it's it, it, usually it's days, sometimes yeah. depending on how important it is, hours. Yeah. Nice. So sent to us when they, uh, when, when Red Hat bought them or bought that project brand, they converted it into like a, you know, a, a transitional thing where they do a lot of, uh, you know, they transition everything really quickly where it used to be, it actually used to be like a couple months when it wasn't a Red Hat product. And now that it is, it's, you know, you can get it within, like, I think the most I've seen it so far with, like, anything that's, like, a big push was, like, a week. And that's totally reasonable. The person who created and helps develop the kernel isn't happy. And that person is Linus Torvalds. He is not happy right now. And that makes everybody sad. But he's not happy because the performance in the kernel 4.20 apparently stinks. Um, and this is the result of what they call single thread indirect branch predictors, as well as uh, some type of hyper threading issue with the Spectre V2 protection that they've put into the recent kernel. Now we had all heard that there were going to be performance hits, Michael with Spectre and meltdown. Mm -hmm. And we saw some performance hits there, but recently we've been seeing some benchmarks on 4.18, 4.19 with Linux and Windows, even in gaming and things, and Linux is stomping 
across the board in these benchmarks. Mm -hmm. But apparently that may end if you migrate to 4.20 because there's as much of a, as a 50% decrease wow. in performance in yeah. 4.20. Yeah. Not 5%, not 15, 50 when, when the spectrum meltdown thing started out, there was like an estimate of the max would be 30%. And then they apparently were wrong. Mm -hmm. So this is totally understandable why uh, Linus is, is a little mad. If you actually see the interviews uh, that with Linus or Craig KH, uh, anytime they talk about the mitigation stuff with Spectre and Meltdown, they are not happy at all. They really hate it because it's, it's, it's basically a massive flaw that it's on them to fix instead of the people who actually created the problem. Um, right. So yeah, that's, that's totally understandable why they would be annoyed by it. Well, they're annoyed by it. And basically there is a, I was expecting to see, you know, as I was reading about this, this, the STIBP is basically an indirect branch control mechanism that restricts some of the prediction between the logical processors and the core. And as I understand it, Michael, that's kind of how Spectre executed itself, right? Using yeah. some of the that branch ability. prediction is like the, right. is the fundamentals of how Spectre and, and Meltdown works. Uh, they, they're very similar. They basically use branch prediction or speculative branch prediction for, uh, for both Meltdown and Spectre, but they're different levels. And also... The Spectre has gone through like probably, I think now three or four different like branches of issues, and uh, they once they figure they figure out how to fix one, there's another one that kind of like you know just follows on with another with extra stuff they got to work on. So uh, this was this seems like this is gonna this is one of the uh, the bigger like uh, this is like something that wasn't known when the first issue of Spectre was made. Um, so. You know, it, it, I, I actually, when we, we talked about it the first time, uh, I predicted there would be at least three or more of these things. And we we're pretty close to that being true. Hopefully I was, I'm not wrong in the sense that it keeps going after that. Uh, but I would, I kind of, I really wouldn't be surprised. Well, see 4.19 is the LTS right now, right? Yeah. 4.20. But here's the thing. This has been backported to 4.19 already. So yeah, some if, of it has. Yeah. So what Linus is suggesting is not pulling this code as we've seen before, but he's recommending to basically only apply this type of uh, single thread indirect branch prediction process to specific processes that require it so that it's only killing the performance during those processes and not everything in Linux across the board as it's doing now. So the question is, if I'm on 4.19 kernel right now, I'm experiencing potentially a 50% performance reduction on certain loads because I've not noticed any It's possible, or... depending on like the type. Most of these things are going to be like the bigger massive loads. If you're going to do like, I, I don't think the desktop users are going to be mod maybe, uh, affected by it that much or even notice it that much. Uh, unless you did benchmarking, but if you just do a basic usage, I don't think you're going to notice it most of the time, uh, depending on what you're doing. Like you're going to do video rendering. Uh, I don't think that that is, uh, affected by this, but, uh, video rendering is very taxing on the system. So something like that, that's very taxing. You would might, you might notice it from that point, but for the most part, I think this is mostly like a big server, uh, uh, you know, massive deployment type thing that's going to be mostly noticeable. Um, but the benchmarking mm -hmm. could be another thing there too. I think that this is uh, a, a very reasonable compromise for um, not pushing it out to everywhere and only doing it where it's necessary. 
And uh, if to be clear, if you if you have 4.19, you might not have these patches. Uh, you have to have 4.19.2 to have all these. Oh, I'm mm-hmm. sorry. What am I thinking? I know why being on 4.19.2, I'm not having performance issues because I'm not on Intel. That's why. Oh, My right. bad. Oh, being AMD, we don't have to worry about that as much because this is a strictly mm-hmm. Intel issue. Go Team Red. So again, my question to everybody would be, how close are we to Intel producing another processor that isn't suffering all these mitigations? Years. Yeah. No, well, are we? I was under the impression that they, they, they had it slated to release. No, that, that they haven't solved the problem. The hardware, the update is, is a mitigation only, and they actually haven't solved oh. it. So the, the so next... They're not, so they're still not fixing it in silicon? Yeah, they're not. it's not mm. totally fixed. It's just mitigated on the hardware for the next generation or maybe the one after that but i think it's i think it's the next one and it's still you know you're still gonna have a performance hit there they're, as far as they actually solving the problem you probably like a couple of years or so i mean intel's so busy re-releasing their same processors just overclocked under a different name that it's right. not none of these are getting fixed so i i would say we're at least a year off of a production line if if they're even working on it i don't know that they're actually doing anything with it I i've not heard well, I'm going to rain all over Ryan's parade because uh, Team Red may be doing okay when it comes to processors. They're not doing so great when it comes to graphics cards. The RX 590 has had massive, massive issues in Linux. Um, the RX 590, the, the AMD graphics stack is not working um, basically at all. Um, there's a very interesting write-up on Pharonix. Uh, went through and, and, and Michael, uh, is it Larabelle? How do we pronounce his name? did a very interesting write-up discussing exactly his experiences. They actually, he, he uh, ascertains that they probably knew about this. And, and because that they knew that they were going to have some issues, they did not let him know about anything ahead of time. They didn't give him any samples. Uh, he had to order it on release day. But on release day, he ordered the 590, plugged it into his machine, booted up to a blank screen. Nothing really happened. Uh, <laughs> sat there staring at a blank screen for a while. Eventually, he did get a picture, but it was an 800 by 600 picture. Welcome back to 1997. And uh, <laughs> was was fairly unusable. And so he, I mean, I'm not kidding you guys. He goes through this article step-by-step uh, step on, well, then I tried this, and then I tried this, and, and tried using everything up to and including the most bleeding-edge uh, kernel that he could get, which is the AMD GPU DRM Next 4.21 WIP kernel branch, still doesn't work. Um, and uh, and so he said, you know, it's a real, real shame that this is where we're at, and it's a real shame that this is where AMD is at. And, but the reality is I've always seen AMD as a company who is making a I don't want to say experimental product, but a product for those that are tinkerers and want to play and are okay struggling a little bit to get it working. If you want it to work out of the box, get an NVIDIA and get an Intel. And uh, and it'll work pretty much out of the box, no problem. If you want to try and save a little bit of money and eke out that extra little bit of performance, that's where I think AMD fits the bill. And I'm not sure if you agree with that, Ryan, being an AMD guy. Is that is that kind of how you look you know, at this? Or is this- <laughs> Zeb, first of all, you're not allowed to talk during this entire <laughs> news story i just want to make that clear as a team green person you're not allowed to talk about uh, i was very i did I, I was very bummed out but you know i had to put this article in here because we we talked about the fact that um 
I love AMD CPUs. They, this was not always the case. I was I would have told you a couple years ago before the rise in line, I won't touch an AMD unless I need a room heater because it was a fact. It wasn't a made-up joke or meme. They would heat your room. They yep. were ridiculously hot, and they required way too much power, and the performance wasn't there. Uh, there were only very specific applications which you would want to use AMD during those times. Things have changed. I'll take my Ryzen any day over the week over an Intel chip. I think it's a far superior card. It just, the the um, speed, and I was talking with one of my patrons, and we were talking about, uh, I think they had the Ryzen 7 1800X or one of those. I have the 27X, and he goes, I can't get the thing over 15% CPU utilization, no matter what I'm doing. The highest I've ever seen streaming a game and gaming at the same time with OBS is 30%. This thing is a beast, and we're not even talking Threadripper here. So, I mean, these, these CPUs are amazing. They don't get hot. They're amazing. Now, in the GPU world, completely different story. Uh, I obviously switched from NVIDIA. I had the 1060, the 1070, the 1080. I had the Vega 56 and the Vega 64 on the AMD side. Now, NVIDIA stinks in Linux because proprietary drivers, you're constantly, if you're trying distros a lot, running into, or not even a lot, just updating your distro, the black screen with the blinking cursor that you have to do the no mode set for, and all of this kind of junk. Whereas AMD, you plug the card in, and you're done. That was the most shocking thing to me, having a Vega card. I didn't know what to do. I was looking online like, (laughs) what driver do I install? Where's the driver? Where do I download it? You don't. It is in the kernel. So that is amazing, right? And I can run any distro at any time and never have I come across the black screen with the blinking cursor, had an issue booting into a distro. I think that's to this day why I can run all of these distros like Arch and everything else and they never break because I'm not on NVIDIA anymore. With that said, AMD has a real issue with their driver confusion because while I say you can just plug it in and that's the recommended way to go, they still have proprietary drivers that you can download that are called pro drivers, which every person who joins my channel is like, I downloaded the pro driver and I'm having issues because you don't need it. You're not, you're not supposed to use it. And then a lot of the drivers that they have out there, I think there's like three different versions are confusing. But the point is, stick with the kernel one. The yeah. issue here is supposedly the 590 was supposed to be built into the kernel and you're supposed to be able to plug it in and use the 590 right out of the box, which is what we're expecting from AMD nowadays. And it's not working and it's a terrible experience. And let me tell you something, if Veronix can't get it to work, nobody is getting it to work. That's fair. And so, I mean, or or it's, it's beyond anybody else's ability. So I love AMD CPUs. I'm trying to love AMD GPUs. The Vega 64, which was meant to compete against the 1080, it came out later. It should have been faster. It wasn't until now. Now you're seeing the benchmarks and it's actually faster because it took them that long to write an actual driver to unlock the power of the card. And that's ridiculous. So I love Team Red, but they do need to do, they need to hire more people to focus. They're doing fantastic on the hardware side. They really need to focus on the drivers and get that figured out because it's sloppy. That's that's the best way yeah. to put it. The transition from the, the card release to the driver release is, is a little weird because there's actually been multiple models of different like graphics drivers and even CPUs where they release something and they're like, hey, the, the thing you already have is getting better. Like, that's cool, but that that shouldn't always happen. You shouldn't be releasing stuff and then yeah. still having that repeated over and over. 
like you know once mm. or twice I, I i appreciate the fact that they're optimizing but you know not just continuously do that but the the ryzen 580 is still like a solid offer oh right? yeah yeah 580 is still a very solid card i mean this is a just released card but the 590 was it it you know, it was meant to go after the 1060 Ti's and that range of NVIDIA. It was priced right. I see a lot of people picking this up for the holidays. And now you're going to boot into it in Linux and be like, oh, great, 800 by 600. Welcome to 1997, I think, Noah said. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that, that's kind of, that's just, that sucks so bad. I'm sure they'll fix it. Um, but AMD really should be partnering with Pharonix. Honestly, uh, with all the work and love and tension they're getting in the Linux world, Pick someone like Michael, send your cards to him and me, but mostly him, <laughs> and let him do this testing because he could have told you if you'd have sent this hit to him ahead of time, you're having this issue. Have some people, third-party individuals, do some quality testing for you, and I think AMD would be in much better shape. In fact, think about it. Utilize the open-source community that you're supporting. Open-source the testing out to some other people as well. And I think they're going to have a way better product if they leverage that. Yeah, and, and mm-hmm. in this case, you could show that Pharonix is doing the testing anyway and having it, you know, much sooner and much faster and, and like more in depth because they have the connect. They, if they had the connection to talk to AMD and like troubleshoot it, then they could be even better. So uh, it's it's one of those things. I, I have to agree totally that uh, AMD <coughs> is open sourcing and like they're do, they're doing all the right things. There's a few, like just tiny little things. Where like you know, if you just if you just did this too, you could increase your your uh, your offer like exponentially, and it shouldn't mm-hmm. it wouldn't really be that big of a deal. Like hey here hey Pharonix, uh, here's one card that that should be you know they should at least consider that. And I know mm-hmm. Michael would have been sending them updates. Hey, I'm having this issue because if you look at his write up, he actually says I see the issue with the code in here it's this one line that needs to be fixed here like i mean why wouldn't you use him as as your as your your testing bed there because i think it would make amd better now will amd fix this i absolutely think they will i just really i do have to be honest with these things and say this is like releasing a half game and then when you go to put the game you buy a brand new game you put it in your system and it has 40 gigs worth of updates because (laughs) they they, they released it on a disc and then it was half ready and now they're trying to fix it. And that's what it seems like AMD did here. And I don't like seeing that stuff when NVIDIA does it. And I definitely don't want to see it with AMD. So I'm going to call it out when I see it. And like mm-hmm. you said, there's and- a number of people that are willing to troubleshoot this. Michael Michael would from Pharonix would be one, but another guy would be a Wendell Wilson, right? I mean, the guy has literally mm-hmm. been flown out to MSI to help them do development they they understand what the Linux market needs, and you wouldn't even have to pay these people. They would do it for free. Mm-hmm. And just to just to set the record straight for um, our friend there, Ryan, I can't remember the last time I've had a blinking black cursor on my NVIDIA card setup. Oh, whatever. That's because you sit on peppermint and never move. <laughs> You're not even the test case I'm talking about. Uh, but I, I can remember. I, I, I had it constantly on NVIDIA when I was distro hopping. Now, if you're on Ubuntu or some base like that, you're not going to run into it as often. It's when you're when you're distro hopping, if you're using a Manjaro, uh, any Arch-based distro, it's constant. Uh, that, that type of stuff happens. Any bleeding edge distro, it's an issue on. Anything where you're doing more of a stable run, yeah, you're not going to have that issue as much. So I should say on Enzigos. 
Oh yeah, you, you would see it oh, on yeah. Antigos eventually. Once you keep updating, there will be an update yeah. to an NVIDIA driver, and then it will happen. Not not seen it yet. Should I see it on Fedora? Zeb, probably. Anyway, Michael, what's going on with Raspberry Pi? <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so uh, earlier we were talking about the Raspberry Pi and uh, the latest model. This is actually the latest model, the Raspberry Pi Three Model A Plus. It's yeah. uh, it's a brand new offering from Raspberry Pi, but it's not meant to be like the most powerful thing. It's meant to be a more cost-effective, but still much more powerful and more feature, uh, you know, feature set than the the Raspberry Pi like a nano wireless type approach. Like the this has uh, like all the like Bluetooth built in and a full size HDMI. Like the other the other one is like five ten dollars basically. But once you add all these extra like up adapters and everything to make it, you're you're basically right. spending the same price that you would for this, which is twenty five dollars. So this is a really cool thing because if you don't need the power of the full B plus model, the A plus will provide that while at the same time having like full USB, full HDMI, and everything like that. This is a really, uh, we've talked about this last episode. These are amazing devices. But what makes me really upset is that our patrons and our Telegram group keep posting pictures of their Model A pluses arriving. And I don't have one yet because I'm trying to close on a house and my wife won't let me spend any money. But I want one of these just to have it. Um, <laughs> Noah, did you get one yet? Ryan, it's they're like 35 bucks. I know, but my wife said, no, Noah, can you buy it for okay, me? Right. Well, yeah, I was just going to say, tell your, tell your wife that after we get off the air, uh, you're going to give me your address and I'll have one shipped to you and it'll be there next week. And then you can tell us about it. Okay. <laughs> that sounds awesome. So this is country. a very, this is a very cool device because it's a 1.4 gigahertz quad core. So you get that more power than the previous, you know, the zero, if you're comparing it to that, which I think was what you were talking about, Michael, the video yeah. core, Four GPU, five twelve megabytes of RAM. You get the Bluetooth, the Wi-Fi built in. Basically, you just don't get the Ethernet port. So for a lot of people, this is still a very, very useful project, and it would be perfect for the Mozilla IoT project, for instance, that I'm running on because you don't need that direct Ethernet connection. You could just run it off of Wi-Fi uh, there or other projects that you're messing with, such as the robotics you can do with Pies and all that stuff. Uh, I think Noah said he had boxes of Raspberry Pis just in case. So if you don't have boxes yet and you want to keep up, this is only 25 bucks. Yeah. So go pick it up. Yeah. Uh, to be for a quick correction from the, the patron chat, uh, Yannick, let me know that the Zero W does have a USB, full USB. No, sorry, full HDMI. And uh, okay. like that, th th this is, but to be clear, while that one does have a full size, uh, this one is a lot more powerful than Zero W anyway. So it's still a good option, especially when you don't have to do all the extra adapters and stuff like that. Cool. So moving on to the next subject. And before we do, I just let Ryan know that um, what I've been up to this week, I've been dropping Google with a cursor. No, I've been dropping that because that never happens on my video. I've been, um, I've stopped using Google Chrome and I'm on Mozilla. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Where's our cake? This is, this is celebration <laughs> here. This is so beautiful, Zeb. I get one of those, yeah, one of those moment, things called that you, that you blow them out and they just like to shoot the little like loud sound and stuff. I don't, gazoo, even, gazoo, things, yeah. I don't know. But there's, like, anyway, we got to get some of those. <laughs> yeah. So, the other good thing that um, Mozilla are up to at the moment is that they are still fighting for net neutrality. So it says here that Mozilla is still in the fight for net neutrality 
and we're all incredibly grateful for their work. In a recent blog post, Mozilla took the next step in defending the freedom of their web. Their goal is to protect consumers from the FCC's attack on the open internet. To do this, Mozilla has filed their challenge to the FCC on the net neutrality ruling. Um, and we'll leave um, links into the show notes to tell you exactly um, what they're up to. Um, and I'll leave it to you more technical guys to, to let me know more details about how they think they can accomplish this. I mean, can we just take a moment and thank you, Zeb, for moving off of Google Chrome onto a adult browser, Mozilla Firefox. And, and tell me, are you loving it? <laughs> the best browser. It works. There you go. It so works. you're going to stay on it. We're not going to find in, out next week you're back on Chrome, right? You're not. So you're not going to mention the increased, uh, the increased performance. You're not going to mention, you're not, nothing about the fact that all of their meetings are open. So you have an organization that actually cares about you, the user, and not the, the, uh, the corporate interest of the dollars and none of that i'm 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 a linux user i just use for me what works and google chrome had always worked before uh -huh. but my um not my ryan just kept going on and on and on and on and on i mean yes. to, the, to the extent Persistent. that i was almost um zeb google rather than <laughs> that's google so yeah i, I took the plans and, and changed over um <laughs> And my biggest complaints, they have now fixed. You know, you can now use YouTube chat without having to click into the chat first and then click back into the chat box for it to pick it up. So that was my single biggest reason for not using it. Um, it comes as standard with the PEP, so I guess I should be using it anyway. Yeah. And, yeah, it's, it's working fine. I still can't find all these wonderful tricks that you guys keep talking about, like containerized tabs and this magical Facebook protect me from the evil I'll Facebook world. Like, so, yeah, so we'll have to do a little yeah. session and maybe do a, re a video on it so that other users I can I probably should. That's a good idea. As well. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm very happy to hear that, Zeb, and, and I hope you stay on it. Like, like Noah said, this is a company that has, you know, they're not perfect, but they, they do certainly fight for the end users, and that seems to be their primary goal uh, all the time, and that's very nice. This FCC filing is, you said, how are they supposed to win? Well, I don't know that they will uh, particularly win here. I mean, anytime you're going up against the government, it's like a good luck situation, right? But what they did is it's a 58 page, I think, or more detailed argument discussing counterpoints to the FCC's original decisions here with mm -hmm. regards to net neutrality. One of the most important ones and one of the ones that personally, you know, I can speak to as I work for one is that there is not enough competition in the ISPs to have a free market run here. And that was one of the FCC's great arguments is it's the free market. You know, if somebody comes in and starts throttling your Internet service, then the free market will come in and will fix that, which in most cases is true, except for the fact that most rural areas and not even non-rural areas only have one ISP to choose from. And there is so much grease palming and everything else that goes on to make mm -hmm. sure that competition doesn't come into those areas and so much cost to dropping new sonnet fiber rings and other things in order to put a network in a rural area, which you'll never get your money back because there's 5,000, 10,000 people in an area and you're supposed to drop your own sonnet ring to compete with Comcast in a specific area or any other ISP. It's never going to happen. So because of that, free market trade doesn't apply 
And right. because of that, this situation with ISPs, they could do whatever they want. And that's why it's important to have rules on the book that say they can't do whatever they want in these cases because we don't have a situation where an open market can thrive yet in this market. When it's there, I absolutely agree with them. Then this, these rules could go away. But until that time, I yeah. think at least companies are out there fighting for this. There's also 20, like 20 states that specifically have laws that make it very, very difficult for new ISPs to come into an area. Uh, like, for example, there's there was a, a couple states that have laws where you have to, uh, if you just decide to be an ISP in that state, you have to be able to offer 50% capacity immediately before you lay down anything, which is just impossible. So like... Well, it's also idiotic. Yeah, exactly. But the there's fact- no, there's no, there's no business model in the face of the history of time where you step into a market for the first time and immediately take over fifty percent of the business. I don't think yeah. that's ever once happened. Yeah, that, it's that's exactly, and it's it's ridiculous that there's there's actually like laws that that I mean, there's I know there's at least five states that have that type law, but there's twenty states that have that have multiple like limitations and things, and it's just it's just ridiculous. Um, and they also like the idea is like some of the people were like, well, you have options. They're like they're, they're, they're like hinging on the idea of an option of a different technology. So like you might have a cable option and you might have a DSL option, but those two options are not comparable. You know, you can't, you can't say that, that DSL is any close at all reasonable to cable, like cable automatically dominates, dominates. And there was one well, they're talking about satellite in some cases, which you're, you're talking 128 KBS in yeah. most areas right now. I mean, that's not internet anymore. Right. I mean, you, you can't call that competition. I mean, there's, it's actually <laughs> kind of funny because in my area, there was two companies that were cable offers and they're not, they didn't compete with each other. They had like territory structure. So like if you were in the big city, you had one company. If you were outside of the city, you had a different company, that different company who was outside of the city, bought the one that's in the inside of the city. Now it's just one. And no matter where you are, it's like, yeah, it's like not only is there no competition, they're even consolidating the current competition that they sort of maybe could could, like pretend they had. So uh, I think this is fantastic that Mozilla is doing this uh, filing against the FCC to try to remove this horrible decision because uh, net neutrality is very important. It has a terrible branding name, but it's very important. Yep. So, uh, you know, no, or uh, no, I was going to say, uh, Zeb, we talked about you getting off Google the browser, uh, which is fantastic. And Google's in the news. Maybe this is what you're talking about where I keep harping on it. Whether I don't keep harping on it. These news stories just keep popping up. Uh, but this is another Google product, one that I also have an issue with, which is why I'm trying the UB ports uh Ubuntu touch phone and trying to find other alternatives. But the Android devices here continue uh, to make the news item because they're constantly being, you know, uncovered to have malicious apps or getting hacked or getting compromised or randomly breaking privacy, for no reason, calling home, all the stuff that we love from Google. So there are 13 applications recently that were uncovered from the Google Android store, accounting for 560,000 installs. And applications were malicious. They were completely compromised. And Zeb, they could have gotten you here because I noticed that every single one of these apps are malicious car and motorcycle driving simulation apps. And I thought the only driving simulation person I know is Zeb (laughs) and EB. So I don't know if you download these for your phone, but if you did, uh, you may need to get them off there right away. 
No, I don't because I can't play games on a six-inch screen. It's just too small. I agree. Yeah, gaming on yeah, gaming yeah. on a phone is Un- unless you want to play the new Diablo. <laughs> Yeah. What you don't have a phone, Michael? Yeah, yeah right. Well, actually, my my late my Nexus decided to just collapse on itself. So at the moment, no. Yeah, so, but let's just put this a little bit into perspective as well. We're talking about thirteen applications that they've uncovered out of two point one million. No, that's just for this one batch, really. I mean, this mm-hmm. is it is in this in this one sense you could say that it is not that but that much. However. Uh, this is not oh, the first one. time it's happening. This is not the first one time. One is bad. Yeah, one yeah, is exactly. bad. Regardless of the fact that they do 2.1 million, there should be checks exactly. and balances before this stuff hits the store. Because people's expectation is, you know, I've just paid £950 for my new Samsung Galaxy S9 Plus. I don't expect to be to download a racing game and then get hit by this, um, you know, this malware, or call it what you will, that then changes my Google Store to its own APK, yeah. so that they can do other stuff to you. It just shouldn't be happening. The fact that they don't have a, an automatic, like I agree completely, they should have an automatic tester where it shouldn't any app, like any app on Android, should not allow you to ask if it if like automatically ask to install another APK from that because that means you have to open up the developer mm-hmm. settings and, st- and like unknown sources and all this other stuff that should that should automatically be a red flag so the fact but that this is how at crappy all. google's supposed automated testing system is that they put into place yeah. because the app doesn't even run a game once you install it you clicked on the app it opened to a black screen and then popped up uh after it closed it deleted its own icon asked you, do you want to install this APK, which you thought would be the game, because you're like, what just happened? And you click yes, and then it's basically got all the access to everything on your device because the Android permission system is also a pile of crap. So you've got all of these things happen. And by the way, they've pulled 700,000 apps just last year. These are the ones they've caught. So think about that for a moment. Somebody wrote 700,000 malicious apps potentially just last year alone that got caught how many do you think you're getting through there um and, we, and we've mm-hmm. heard about this we've had these news items on here before mm-hmm. so it's interesting because i brought this up to my uh my patrons on telegram i was asking them what is a better option than what apple's doing because we beat up on apple because we say it's a closed garden approach you don't hear about this stuff happening at least this frequently if at all on the Apple level. Store, yeah. because it's a closed garden. They also have a much better permission system, but essentially it's a closed garden. You have to do a lot more work to get your app accepted onto Apple. Is there a way that Google can basically fix this issue, um, or would they have to go the Apple approach to become a closed garden in order to address this issue? I mean, they could fix it by giving testing to make sure that like, anything that's anything that's known as a method of malicious action to be a red flag and automatically not get allowed into the play store like that, that it is like this, this particular instance of all these applications, like all 13 of them did the same thing of opening a, an APK after the fact and installing something, there should be a testing to say that that that's part of the code that's trying to do that. And the fact that that was not considered a flag is, uh, actually kind of baffling. Ludicrous. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't get how that's not well, a flag, you know? So here's because here's the counter argument to that, right? You're absolutely right. We don't see this problem with Apple because Apple closes up the wall and they only let the apps that they do let in 
are very, very specific and, and, and so on and so forth. And I have no argument against that whatsoever. I think you're absolutely right. But you know what else you don't see on Apple because of their, I believe, because of their closed garden approach and because it drives away innovators and, and developers and people that want to play stuff. There is no DEX for iOS, right? Yes. There is no, there is no Samsung that says, well, I want to compete with it. I don't like the, it, I don't like the status quo that is Google. So we're going to invent our own thing and we're going to try this brand new, really cool thing. And we're going to try and leverage the parts of Android we do like and combine them with the parts we do. You don't see any of that on Apple because you can't, you, it's a take it or leave it approach. Mm-hmm. So I, I, you know, I guess it depends on which devil you want. Do you, I mean, with, I mean, it goes back to the Spider-Man quote with great freedom comes great responsibility. This is a perfect example of some people abusing it. Yeah. I mean, th- this is a, it's a perfect argument because while I do personally run Apple because of security, privacy, encryption, those type of things, I want a third player in there because I don't like Apple's solution. I don't think it's the great solution. Dex is one of those things that drives me nuts because you have no idea how bad I want one of those phones just to play with Dex itself. As somebody who completely thinks Google has destroyed Android, uh, with its privacy issues, its completely fractured messaging system that still to this day, as I understand it, or maybe they just finally implemented one that actually has encryption, which Apple's had for four years or more. Yeah. They, they actually all, canceled like three of them. So no, <laughs> I mean, it, it's just a constant mess. And everything we expect from Linux, as I've said before, doesn't happen on Android. It's not private. It phones home constantly. It makes Windows look like it's private. It, it is just a complete mess. Mm-hmm. But yet, they have things like that that can happen because of cool people out there trying and playing and tweaking and being able to create things like Dex. And I can't argue with that fact. There's also just, the openness that allows that developers to create yeah. all kinds of different new concepts like KDE Connect is a fantastic thing that you can't use on Apple. But you, it, yeah. it is a fantastic, uh, in, like once you have it, you don't want to not have it. So like, when you have a near trillion dollar company that's made so much money off this product and they can't create logic to look at an app and say, hey, there's only five seconds worth of content here. Maybe something's <laughs> wrong. It really makes you wonder what the heck is going on over there. And this yeah. is what happens when you don't have competition right out there their algorithms are their their algorithms are designed just to for demonetization on youtube they're not worried about security on android it's completely different Mm -hmm. yeah this is why competition is so important because without a third player this is the type of crap that people get away with Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. lineage is too complicated to be a third player really yeah but back onto the deck thing i was really disappointed to learn that you can only play with ubuntu if you've got the note 9 Mm -hmm. and and the the, tablet um, something tab four or something yeah. the tab four is 540 quid and the note nine plus is just under a grand or if you want the ultimate with 512 mega ram and or storage and then an sd card on the top is about 1300 dollars. so i won't be playing with that part of the decks anytime soon unfortunately yeah. the the decks thing is like really cool because the, the actual decks itself is like under 100 and it's if you already have that phone then getting that uh the decks is not a big deal like really yeah well, well that was really weird because the decks in the uk i got it for 50 quid and it works perfectly i'm just saying the ub ports phone which i'm going to talk about more i've got the two most important things on here the podcast ask noah show and destination linux it has its own podcast app what more do you need than that phone calls messages <laughs> you might need this week in linux on apps. there too oh sorry yeah let me go add that <laughs> 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 what else is in the news noah We've got uh, Microsoft, in addition to Google getting in trouble for uh, 
for doing some shady things. Microsoft this week is is in some hot water. The brief synopsis of, of the of the story is that Microsoft is has violated um, some privacy laws over in Europe um, by capturing data in their in their office suite. And um, I'm so you know, shocked. We can go through all this. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, we could go through all the specifics. They're capturing email titles, sentences, translations, spell checkers, all that stuff. But I think the the more important thing that is going on here is the fact that a lot of times people, how many times have you heard the argument? Well, I just use what works. I, I just use whatever the best tool for the job is. And I don't treat software as a religion. And Linux to me is, you know, we shouldn't worship at the altar of Linus. It's just a, it's just a tool, right? Mm-hmm. And that it's such a cop-out. It feels so cheap to me because it is a fundamental misunderstanding of what it is that, of what technology means in society today, right? Because the, the reality is it's not just a tool. It's not like a hammer or a saw because we have very, very private, intimate data that goes through some of these things. Man, you're, are, you, are you kidding me? I mean, the, ty- the email titles, like every email that I send to, to inside, of the, inside of my job, inside of my work, outside of work in, in, the, in the personal setting and Microsoft is going to capture all of this and store it on their servers and then dig through it and see what kind of valuable information that they can get so they can go sell it to advertisers. Shuffing. I mean, are you kidding me? Yeah. And so, and, and so when you read stuff like this, it says Microsoft uh, tracks 25,000 different types of quote unquote event data and keeps a team of 20 to 30 engineers who sit there and analyze it. Translation, Microsoft captures everything private that you do and hands it to a team of really privacy-invading nerds that geek out and go through your stuff and decide what's juicy. I mean, you know, this kind of thing is the the thing that, if you can't tell, it really gets my blood boiling, but I don't understand where the advantage in using these Microsoft Office products are as it compares to LibreOffice or, I mean, if you really have to, Google Docs, because as much as I don't like Google and as much as I don't trust Google and as much as I don't particularly care for Google's invasion of privacy. I don't even think they do some of this stuff. Probably I mean, the email titles, but at least with G Suite, you, you sign an agreement. Now we have I've entered into those contracts with clients. They don't well at least they claim they don't data mine when you pay for it as a as a business professional. Mm-hmm. Also, it's interesting. Yeah. I, I thought it was shocking to think twenty five thousand different types. Not twenty five thousand emails they capture, but different types of data that they're capturing. In the, I mean, that is insane. How do you come well, up with twenty five thousand different types? I was going to say I couldn't even come up with a thousand things to say. Right, let's have a look at the subject matter. Let's have a look at the contents of the email. Let's have a look at the signature. But I appreciate your uh, your passion for this, Noah, because people should be mad about this. This is what drives me nuts uh, a lot is I got into Linux and I I got into Linux because I was doing my channel on privacy and all of this stuff. And eventually it led me naturally to Linux because Mm -hmm. that's where your privacy and security is. And yet we have these solutions here, like even going back to the Google Android phones and things that are completely contrary to everything that we expect to have on our desktop and our computers that we fight for. And, and we just completely let it go. Like, well, it's my phone. So whatever. Or in this case, well, I like using office. It's, it's really cool and convenient. Cause I, I know on the little bar button where the bold button is like in Libra office, it takes me two more seconds to find it. Uh, it, it this is the stuff we compromise basically everything that we've wanted to build here as a community for. And I think more people need to get pissed off about it. I think more people need to be mad about this stuff because it does matter. And we're the only ones, by the way, because we're way deep in the technology geekdom. We're the ones that need to be alerting people about this without sounding like nut jobs, but giving real solutions 
and, and telling people about why this stuff matters. This is important. It's going to impact your life. It's already impacted your life in many ways. There are so many reports out there of credit card companies and other things now using this data to decide if they're going to give people credit cards. This could be used by medical field. There's, there's so many ways mm-hmm. this data that you think is not important will be important to you. But by the time it is, it's going to be too late. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but here's the thing. Nobody, no, they will get a pass. They will get a pass. Nobody will care about this. This is one of those stories that's going to go in one ear and out the other. And there'll be people sitting there with their popcorn or on their computer. They're like, nope. That sucks. That's that. Uh, I agree with those guys there. Those uh, those Linux guys are absolutely right about that. That's Microsoft Office. That's a real terrible thing. Anyway, back to work. So uh, let's get the right. so let's up open here. up Microsoft <laughs> Office. Like, I'm gonna write them yeah, an email exactly. in, in Word. <laughs> <laughs> Outlook. Yeah, they, uh, but yeah, exactly. They, they it, it goes in one ear and out the other because at the end of the day, when it comes to privacy or convenience, people are always going to err on the side of convenience, and it it's 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 frustrating because as that message continually gets pounded into the the, the heads of these corporations that, hey, you know what, at the end of the day, do whatever you want. People really don't care. They'll be upset about it for a couple hours, if that. Uh, and then they move on and get right back to using your product and you can sell them the next new version. So, and if you're really smart, then you can cloudify it and then, you know, even better, you can collect more data and collect more money. Uh, and mm-hmm. people will be happy because they'll look at it as an upgrade. Yep. So, yeah, yeah I, it's frustrating. All right. So I've made the jump from Google to Mozilla. What am I going to jump to? from Office 365 from an email point of view? Because I've been an Outlook user since the day dot. Thunderbird, man. Right? Yeah, I've Thunderbird on Linux. So just ditch Office 365 and go with LibreOffice and Thunderbird on, on Windows? It's amazing because, listen, I do this both, you know, in my professional life and for very serious things like buying a new home where every document the lawyers were sending to me and the real estate agents and everything else was in Word. And every single one of them opened in LibreOffice. Every single one of them I was able to edit in LibreOffice. Every single one of them I was able to send it back in the Word format without having a single issue, not a complaint of, we got gibberish back from you, please resend, any of this stuff. Uh, I was able to do very, very important things to me in a professional setting with other people utilizing it. Yeah, I think that works. I think Thunderbird works fantastically. I think LibreOffice works fantastic. I mean, if you need like a cloud solution like replacement for G Suite, it gets a little more complex, uh, at least the solution I could think of and using something like NextCloud and QO Notes and that type of stuff where you have a full kind of cloud suite. When I say a little complex, you know, a weekend and a digital ocean droplet and you be set but it'll take you a while maybe to get those initially set up if you're not familiar with that. But there, there are lots of opportunities there that frankly are cheaper than paying for the Office 365 subscription. There's mm-hmm. also Collabora's um, LibreOffice online service. Which is oh, yeah. Cool. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. Don't they have that integrated into NextCloud as well? Yeah, they're, they're working on that too, yeah. So, you know, just to, to dovetail onto your point, Ryan, I, I get people all the time so at AltaSpeed Technologies, we use LibreOffice for 100% everything and are able to interface with the rest of the world who uses all sorts of different things. And Red Hat use, does the exact same thing. So it doesn't really, you don't have an excuse. You can't say, I'm too small. I can't have, no, you're not too small because we've got seven employees and we managed to make it work. And you can't say, I'm too big. You know, Red Hat, they, they just got put out for what, 40 some billion dollars. Uh, and uh, they seem to make it work. So 
unless if if you're over seven employees or under seven employees or less than you know however many hundreds of thousands of employees Red Hat has contributing to their code, both of those business models manage to make it work. You can too, and if not, you're just making excuses. Yeah, good point. Speaking of which, Michael, you got challenged in an email, so I added it in here because anytime somebody you challenges you, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so I this email in here. It was about our discussion last week on Microsoft Office, in fact, and this person kind of got a little vexed with you. So what do you think there, Michael? Well, they said that they're they're vexed with my uh, – well, they, they the, the way they phrased it was my gauntlet that I threw against uh, Microsoft over the MS Office thing. And what I if you were if you didn't watch that episode, what I basically said was, um, I don't I don't think that I'm not going to say, hey Microsoft, you're doing a good job, and welcome to the Linux community or whatever, until they actually do something that is not self-serving, and they exactly. release they release something that is that that doesn't benefit them at all, but benefits the Linux community, which would be. Maybe even hurts them a little bit. Yeah, in yeah. in a way, kind of. Put yeah, put some skin in the game. Yeah, yeah. Putting my suggestion was having MS Office available for Linux, and they're they're uh, they're they they kind of. I think I didn't express it exactly what I meant, but they were saying that um, uh, you know it's uh, m- maybe that such a move would hurt projects like uh, LibreOffice and things like that. And they also said if if they were to put MS Office on Linux, would asking me would I use it. And then, you know, what, you know, that kind of situation of that, does that, is that why I was talking about it? And really, I have no interest whatsoever to use MS Office ever, uh, and it doesn't matter. I don't care if they're on Linux or not, I'm never going to use it. But the point is, there's no benefit to Microsoft to putting MS Office on Linux. I mean, that could actually hurt them because people wouldn't, there's a lot of people who don't use Linux just because of MS Office. And if they were to do that, they could have transitioned a lot of companies over to Linux users. And that would potentially hurt them. And it would, that would prove that they've changed. That would prove that they actually care. And they're not self-serving. But everything they've done so far, while many of those things are fantastic and they're good for the developers, they're all self-serving. So I don't really care and I don't think they've changed that much. They might they they basically have admitted, yeah, we're kind of at we the point. Wrong. Yeah, we're we are at the point where we know we did not win and we're just trying to battle back to at least get a little bit of the scraps that are left over. But other than that, I don't, I don't, I don't I mean, if something like this happened and people started adopting it and using office products on Linux, then Linux now becomes the Android, what Android has become to me. It's this thing that we used to have all these ideas of saying, Hey, we want privacy. We want security. We want all these things to, well, yeah, just make it like Google Android and let them grab whatever they want because it's really convenient to use no, Microsoft. I'm not Office saying that. that. I don't even. I'm not saying you are, but I'm saying that to me is what would happen if Microsoft did do that uh, and they released those products and people started mass adopting it. I think most of the Linux community would probably avoid it, uh, and because LibreOffice, I don't really know that there's many advantages. The only thing I could say is that there are a lot of advanced functionality built into Excel. I know LibreOffice basic formulas and things like that work in there. I think it's called calculator uh, version of Excel, but it, I don't know if it's as packed yeah. as Excel is. Excel is the only one because it has special formulas and special like uh, API structures that they can do. Uh, right. It's the only There's thing basic, in MS like Office. That. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. most people who use MS Office never use Excel and never use that level of Excel at least. So, right. 
it's not it's definitely not something that people need and LibreOffice is fantastic and it provides 99% of what's necessary for most people and i think or mm-hmm. actually it's it's provides everything that's necessary for 99% of people is my suggest is my guess uh, but like as far as like this this gauntlet thing is mainly to say that i think that the only way i'm ever going to go uh, good job microsoft is if they were to do something that's that would negatively affect them or at least show mm-hmm. that they they're committed to the the platform rather than just what benefits them. And and, and there's an argument that this could be negative if they, if people were to do it and then you know more proprietary software is brought into Linux. But I'm actually okay with proprietary in general. I'm not saying that like I don't I don't have an issue with proprietary uh, as long as it's uh, in good faith that the people are making the software and they they want mm-hmm. people to use it because they want it to be the best software. Now, if there's if there's proprietary that's you know got telemetry, like you know MS Office and all the stuff they take for your data, uh, that's not good. But I'm not saying I, I just want to point out that that's the only reason I put it down there is not because I actually want to use it because I don't, uh, just because I want them to you know actually prove themselves instead of people who are like you know you know Microsoft's on this on Linux side now. It's like nah, not really. Mm-hmm. Okay, so moving on from Microsoft and the data mining, let's get to uh, a favorite section of the show, especially when we have our guest presenter on. Okay, so here we are to the gaming section, um, and every month we have our favorite Linux gaming aficionado, Liam, from Gaming on Linux, onto the show to tell us about the awesome things happening in the gaming world. Liam, thank you for coming on. Hey, so there are some exciting things coming to Linux. Tell us about some of the ones that you're most excited for. Well, Feral are sort of keeping things going for us, doing their AAA releases, because let's face it, not many other companies actually do. Yeah, so we've got, well, they've actually only recently just released Total War Warhammer 2. So that was good. And it performs really well. So I was quite surprised by that compared to Windows as well. The the drop off in performance is really small. So that's really wow. good. Nice. So for anybody who likes the Warhammer, it's massive, especially if you own the first Total War Warhammer and you buy Total War Warhammer 2, you get like this massive combined map from both games. Oh, wow. That's cool. So yeah, this is the I like RTS cool. version Warhammer because there's one where I think you're first person, right? Uh, it's... It's a mix between turn-based and RTS at the same time because you have the overworld map where you're walking around, taking turns, you know, building up your cities and so on. But when you get down into the actual combat, you have, like, massive armies that just, you know, go at each other, and it's, nice. it's pretty awesome. Yeah, and this is, according to your site, this is running on the Vulkan API as well for Linux, so that's probably yeah. why it's such a good performance uh, in comparison to Windows there as well. And I'm looking at some of the benchmarks you have here, and it looks really close, like within four or five frames per second close to Windows. That's crazy. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty good, especially because I think the original one that they ported, Total War Warhammer 1, I think was on OpenGL. So I, I think if anybody does a comparison between them, the, the difference will be quite striking, I think, especially in like the larger battles. The thing I like about this is it's got more than four pixels and it looks great. <laughs> yeah, it's more than four pixels. For that. It, it's AAA as well. I mean, this is definitely a AAA game. As Feral tends to bring the AAA games. You also mentioned to Shadow of the Tomb Raider. 
Now, the Tomb Raider yeah. games are ridiculously popular. In fact, it's interesting because I watched a whole documentary on YouTube about the history of the Tomb Raider franchise. I didn't realize how popular it was, in fact, that Laura Croft has been used in commercials for Visa, MasterCard, all of these mm-hmm. things to try to capture you know, the popularity of Laura Croft at that time. Now, it's kind of died down, I feel like, anyways, a little bit, but the games are still super popular, and they're a lot of fun to play because they're a mix between kind of an action, and as I recall, a lot of them were puzzle games. Is that still the case with Shadow of the Tomb Raider? Yeah, well, see, because obviously the, the first Tomb Raider, they sort of reinvented it and made it more more action-orientated. And then the second one was building on that again, but then it made parts of it more open world and expanded it again. And from what I hear, the third one has a bit more puzzling in it again. So it's going to be quite interesting. But it's good that Farrell have confirmed that they're doing that because it means we get the whole series. So Yeah, that's mm. awesome. I mean, that's quite important because we have a lot of games where we've got like the second one or the third one, but we don't have the first. So it's just nice to have a complete series. Yeah, like Borderlands. Yeah. <laughs> My problem with these sort of games is, I mean, I made a big hoo-ha of it uh, a few a few months ago that I actually got off the mountain um, in, the, in the Tomb Raider one that I've got. And then for some reason I had to trash me partition and I lost it and I can't get off the mountain again. So whilst I love these games, the jumping and the swinging and the grabbing and the, it's like, it's, just can't do it. Coordination's not there. Yep. But they are a lot of fun for a lot of people. And I think it's mm. awesome that Feral's work is continuing to bring these titles in there. And I know we talked about this last time we had you on, Liam, but a lot of people were worried maybe that's going to slow down because of what Steam was doing, et cetera. And what we're seeing is we're still yeah. getting fantastic games, right? If anything, they since, since Steam Play got announced, they seem to be announcing their own titles what feels like a lot sooner than they would be mm-hmm. because they, they released... Total War Warhammer 2, they announced Total War Three Kingdoms, which isn't due until, I believe, next year. Then they've announced Shadow War. No, not Shadow War. Uh, Shadow of the Tomb Raider. What's the Shadow of the Tomb Raider. I always yeah. get those names mixed up. It's really hard. <laughs> so many games. Um, but that's not due to next year. Yeah. And then they've also announced Life is Strange 2 for next year. So it yeah. feels like they've sped up their announcements to perhaps try and stop people buying them for Steam Play is what I assume. Yeah, I mean it's it's kind of interesting because they when they when they used to do it they would do it like every once a year they would announce a new game within like the next month of it coming out or something like that, and it always felt like they would take a while. And this this like the the Steam Play announcement since then they've announced so like you know way more than they typically do, and I think it's kind of a good thing because it it gets their um, it gets their name out there more so because a lot of people uh, have heard of Feral uh, tangentially depending on like what game has come out. But now when they're doing it so much, they're in the, the limelight so much, it's actually beneficial in that way for them as well. So I'm I'm very happy that they're still doing it. And they're also bringing in a lot of cool games like the, the new Tomb Raider because I, I look forward to doing that because I think the Tomb Raider games, like the the latest franchise or the latest series of the franchise is really fun. And it's, it's, it's like... Uh, uh, the combination of action and sort of puzzling is is a is an, uh, a nice combination. I like that type that type of game because. But there's a new new release coming out soon, uh, just in a couple of days actually, like next week, or by the time this releases, it might have already been released. I, I don't know. 
anyway, uh, Valve is releasing Artifact. And Artifact is one of those games that a lot of people are super excited yes. for. And it's a card game, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's a card battling game, right? No, I don't want people to think they're going to get rummy. You know, Valve's releasing <laughs> next version of rummy. I mean, it, it's it's a battle arena card game like Hearthstone. Well, Liam, you could probably describe it better, but yeah, it's a it's a collectible card game, I guess. Yep. It's it's it is hard to describe because there's lots of people describe them in different ways, and they all sort of mean the same thing. But you collect cards, you'll be able to sell them on the Steam Marketplace, and then those cards are units on a battlefield, like Hearthstone or something. Yep. And I've been testing out the, the uh, beta, and it is it's good. Oh, yeah. I am so jealous. You have no <laughs> idea that you have a beta of Artifact. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. How are you it's, liking it? You say it's good. You got to give me more than that. That's the <laughs> ultimate tease right it's there. It's really good. Oh, do it. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a couple of things I want to touch on on Artifact because obviously it's a Valve game. It's gonna it's gonna be a huge thing. No matter what, you're going to get tens of thousands of people jumping it on release date without a doubt. Mm-hmm. And it's not gonna be free. You will have to pay to get in. So. There's a couple of things that sort of annoy me about it a little bit. The actual game mechanics are great. The way they've mixed up a, a card battler. So you're not just on one screen. You're essentially playing three different games because it's in it's inspired by Dota 2. Well, not just inspired, it's in the Dota universe. So you play one match, then it goes over to the next one, and then the next one. So like all the mechanics like yeah. that do make it very different, and it is... It's, challenging so i like all that but i don't like the ticket system that they have in it which Uh-oh. is so you, you have different casual modes where you could play against friends you can do global matchmaking and so on you could play against bots but if you want to do it in the expert mode where you can win packs of cards you have to pay a ticket but these tickets cost m- real money hmm. Ooh. the microtransaction and- way yeah, and I, I don't mind paying for cards because it, it's a collectible card game. In any real life collectible card game, you want more cards, you go and buy them. That's just how it is. I don't mind that being emulated in, in a digital game because it's just normal. It's what you do. But having to pay to play a mode in it to then possibly win more tickets or more cards. And if you're a bit crap like me, lose them all. Um, <laughs> it's just what bugs me about it is that's the only form of progression in it there is no ranking system the only form of progression is the expert mode to win cards Ooh, but you pay a ticket gross. but they did say somewhere on Twitter that one of their priorities for after release is to get some sort of ranking system in it so it might level it out a bit we'll have to see how they do that but for the actual game mechanics outside of that expert mode is really good. Really, really good. I mean, because... I... go ahead. Sorry, go on, go on. No, I was just going to talk about the fact that, you know, they're competing with, because you mentioned that you have to pay for this game yes. uh, right off the bat, which I think it's around $19 right now to pre-purchase it. And yeah, roundabout. They're competing with Hearthstone, which is, you know, by Blizzard. And Blizzard snubbed Linux well since forever. So I'm always excited to have, you know, a game that 
competes from a major company like this, Valve, and they're going to release for Linux on day one. They also got the legendary game designer, Richard Garfield, which, as I understand it, created Magic the Gathering. So, I mean, probably the one of the most powerful or popular gaming uh, card game creators of all time uh, to do some of this. But I don't like, I mean, every all these type of games have microtransactions, whether it's the Pokemon card game or whatever. But like you said, it's buying cards. This is really kind of silly, and maybe hopefully they'll change it. I mean, Valve generally listens to the community if there's enough out for, um, but buying a ticket to go play in expert mode you know that yeah they've they've already made some changes though the the update that went out either a day or so ago did add in a feature where you can sort of convert unwanted cards into tickets so that's a bit better okay but the issue is still to do that you still need to buy those extra packs of cards again oops whack my microphone um so yeah I'm, i'm a bit iffy on that but then you don't need to play those modes at all because there are still all the other modes against either bots or play against your friends in tournaments and global matchmaking, all stuff like that is still just completely part of the game. But it just still, it doesn't feel right that there's no other progression outside of that and you have to pay. Right. Is this something you'll be streaming on Gaming on Linux? Possibly. I might embarrass myself, though. <laughs> we'll come and support you, man. <laughs> we'll, we, we, but, um, we embarrass ourselves all the time. Yeah, it's, exactly. It is a very different game, though, because of the way that the actual cards themselves work. Because it's, it's Dota, you have your hero cards. And like in a lot of other card games, you'll have cards where you'll give them like plus two health or plus two attack or something. It's got all that. But then you also have the heroes that have like item slots, so you can give them an extra weapon and stuff like that. And then when when your hero is say knocked from the board, in another I think it's in another two turns, you get to bring it back, and it'll still have the equipment. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, so it's, it's very unique. Yeah. So is the skill in this game knowing what to equip your cards with when you go into battle against a particular opponent? Well. Like any good card game, you have no idea what your opponent's going to have until they True. put the cards down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every everything you know is is face down on the opposing side, so you don't know what they're playing until they're playing it. You do know what heroes they'll have, and when yeah, it goes through obviously through different stages. Like first, you can put a hero down, then you know you go through attack phases, but then it's also got like a shot. So at the end of each round you've gathered gold from taking down enemy hero cards and stuff and they can buy extra items and it's just there's so many little things about it that make it so very different to other card games but saying that it's it's still not overly complex i i wouldn't consider myself particularly smart with things like that but i picked it up quite well i think even though i suck mm-hmm. i understand the mechanics quite easily which which i think is a good selling point for it it's very different. There's a lot to it, but it's not overly complicated. And it's nice graphically one. quite pretty as well, actually. Looks like we'll have to check it out. Well, another graphically pretty one, and I was actually quite pleased that um, Ryan gave me this one this week, um, is something called Star Sector. Um, and Star Sector has a new major release out, and our friends at Gaming on Linux are saying it's going to be awesome. Um, oh, yeah. The game is currently in development. 
but you can purchase it now. And of course, it's available for Linux. Um, and, and when I had a look at it originally, I, list, I just watched the video because I like to sort of try and gauge what it's all about. And I thought, oh, here we go again, another sort of platform game in space. But then as you watch what they're actually showing you and watch the, what they're giving you, the detail is quite astonishing where you can put, you know, plasma cannons and bombers and all sorts of shields and upgrade your ship. And you don't actually have to do any fighting other than to protect your fleet. You could just go around the whole game being a trader. So yep. there are so many different ways that you can play it. Um, it almost sort of reminded me of uh, the old elite in the old days mm. where you could choose the method that you wanted to, to play the game. So that looked, that looked quite, quite interesting. Have you played it at all? Have you looked at it, Liam? I've actually owned it since when it probably first came out. It was originally called Starfarer. And then they changed it to mm-hmm. Star, Star Sector a couple of years ago. And what instantly hooked me about it is the art for all the different ships. It's so detailed and it just looks so, so freaking cool. <laughs> but it's not just that. What you were saying is kind of true about it seeming a bit like the old Elite games because I, I think I had one of them on the Amiga, actually, and I mm-hmm. spent quite a bit of time on that. But it is, it's kind of like a top-down 2D Elite except it's got even more that you can do. And the combat in it is amazing. Seriously, people need to check it out. Very cool. That game looks absolutely amazing. They've got a lot of new features in this one, like the ability to establish colonies, visiting portside bars to find missions, um, creating your own factions. There's just, it looks like they're continuing to add to it, which is awesome. But, you know, one area where there's not a, there hasn't been traditionally a lot of games, although more and more are coming out, is MMOs. And we noticed on Gaming on Linux this week, the MMO Vendetta Online is coming to Linux as well. And this one looks very cool because, again, it sticks into the space genre, but massively multiplayer online game. Yeah, Vendetta's actually been on Linux for as long as I can remember. Um, it's, it's quite an old game now. Oh, no but, kidding. I never heard of it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been on Linux uh, for donkey's years. But the, the major thing that they're doing is they're, they're upgrading their homegrown engine with Vulkan support, which is it's already sort of out there that you can test on Windows. But once that's more stable, they're going to bring it over to Linux as well. And obviously, that's going to help them expand quite a bit. They're going for things like higher graphical fidelity and just so many more features they wouldn't possibly be able to do right now so it's it's quite exciting i think mm-hmm. it's quite different to stuff like i don't know if anyone's played it but eve online because mm-hmm. yeah. that you're sort of you're outside your ship and you're not really under direct if i remember from years ago you don't have direct control over your ship whereas vendetta online when i tried that years ago it was like first person it, like a first person view model where you're spinning your ship around and doing all your crazy sick moves so it's yeah, it was it was quite cool. So I think it's good that it's still going after all these years as well. It it shows there's people playing it and paying them. So that's always good yeah. to hear, especially the the uh, you know finding out that something's been on Linux before you didn't even know about it. That's that's a, that's always like a bonus. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. kind of interesting because you know there was a point I guess a couple of years ago when I started in Linux that I was looking for MMOs and this one never came across my radar. But I like these type of space games in an MMO format, they can be an absolute blast to play. 
But before we let you go, Liam, let me ask, out of the games we covered today, Shadow of Tomb Raider, Total Warhammer, Artifacts, Star Sector, and Vendetta Online, if somebody's on a budget, which is the one you think they'll get the most value for their money out of? Oh, that's a tough one. Honestly, I, I would go for Artifact right now. Nice. Truly. Yep. Because I think I've put like 25, 30 hours in it. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That reminds me of Hearthstone because when it came out, I wasn't on Linux. So I was playing Hearthstone like crazy and I thought, I'm not going to like this. But I saw people playing it on Twitch or whatever and uh, started playing it. And then days later, I'm like coming out of the the coma on it because those games are ridiculously fun. And there's this poker-like strategy to it. But then you have all of these other elements as well, like you were talking about, that go in that just make it a blast. So I'm excited about Artifact. I'll probably be picking it up on day one as well. Yeah, it is. Nice. It's going to be worth it, I think. And it is Valve in the end. They've supported Linux ridiculously. Mm-hmm. And if there are major issues with the economy, then they'll solve it. Otherwise, it will die. And they won't let that happen. They've invested quite a lot in it, obviously. Right. So I'm not worried about the, the economy on it either. So we'd like to thank you, Liam, um, from Gaming on Linux for coming on to the show um, and for everybody to go and check out their website yeah. for the best and most up-to-date on gaming in the Linux world. Thank you, Liam. Thanks, guys. It was a pleasure. Just before you go, Liam, one of our patrons was asking, he's never played card games before, so what would be a good intro before he goes diving into Artifact? Um, or would he be best just to dive into Artifact and see how he likes it? To be honest, I think if you've never played one before, Artifact would probably be a good one because you wouldn't have all the all the confusion from how different it is to other card games. Hmm. I think point. it would be easier to pick up the mechanics because you're not so focused instantly on having just the one board because you do essentially have three boards that you're playing on. So I think I think it would be quite a good entry one actually. Because honestly, it's, it's tripped me up a few times because it works on the basis of in each lane, you're protecting a tower like you would be if any of you have played Dota 2. Yeah. And um, you can either destroy two towers to win or destroy one tower, which gets replaced with an ancient and then destroy that in the same board and then you win. And it's tripped me up a few times because I'm like, right, I've lost this tower. And then I forget that I've lost it in one lane and I'm like, I'm focusing on another one and I just completely forget and I lose. And I'm, oh. mm. So if you're not going into it thinking you're just on that one board because you haven't played other card games, then you'll probably pick that up quite quickly, I think. So it's uh, overall, it, if you've never tried it it's, it, it's better to try this one anyway because one, it's probably going to have fantastic Linux support and also um, it's it's... If you don't already have the card game thing, this are you saying that would would this kind of like you know solve the problem of people who are not card game friendly? Like you know, I've never actually played a card game, so I don't have any any uh, experience with it. Would it be that type of game that um, would be worth being the first time anyway? Yeah, I think it's got a lot going for it because they've gone for a very sort of beautiful visual style with it like i can't think of any other word that matches it really and especially with these little familiars that you have you each have a little familiar sat on top of your deck that sort of flies across your screen and puts the cards down and stuff and like 
if your tower is about to be destroyed. He's standing there, like, really worried, pointing at it, saying, it's going <laughs> to blow up! That's awesome. And it's like, it's yeah, it's it's very, very well thought. Nice. I actually yeah. might check it out then. Okay, Ryan? Fine. Thank you, Liam, for finally convincing him to play a game, an adult right. game. What? If found the watching, I just made you a sale. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Liam. Cheers, guys. A lot of us, uh, especially in the post-OBS world, we're, we're inclined to say if we're going to capture or broadcast or do anything like that, then we use OBS. And by all means, if you, ha- you want to do some graphics and overlays and stuff like that, then OBS is the way to go if you're you know, recording a tutorial. But what if you don't need to do that? What if you're just trying to help grandma out and you need to show her how to find the bold button in LibreOffice because she is typically a Microsoft Office user? and uh, you want to show her where the bold button is. Well, Simple Screen Recorder is a simple way to do that fantastic little piece of software. Uh, much later on resources, it will allow you to capture your screen audio, um, and you can then embed that into, uh, you know, you can send it over Telegram, you could embed it into a, uh, into a presentation, you can upload it to YouTube, uh, start making little tutorials. If you haven't checked out Simple Screen Recorder, highly recommend you do so. Also want to throw in another personal plug for another one called... Um, Kazam, K A Z A A M, I think. Hmm. No, I was just that was thought that was interesting. I've never heard of the Kazam one. So the Kazam, it's uh, it's very much like Simple Screen Recorder. Um, I, that's actually my go-to if I am when I'm doing tutorials, even if I'm going to do uh, editing in post, uh, I'll use Kazam. One of the things I like about Kazam is I can set the frame rates. So I can say I want it to be 30 frames per second. I don't want it to capture audio because oftentimes I want to add that afterwards in like a like a voiceover kind of a thing and so i don't not necessarily want it to capture um uh, audio but the other thing it lets me do is it lets me do things like i want you to wait 10 seconds and then start recording and i just want you to capture this part of the screen i don't want you to capture my entire uh, computer and then oftentimes what i'll do is i'll cheat and i'll have little notes sitting off to the side and i'll have all my notes of what i'm going to say or what the next step is or whatever and then i'll just show it so i look like a boss and uh, I know exactly what to click on. They can't see that part. Um, and it also lets you cut out the clock, which is kind of neat because uh, one thing that is can be distracting for people in tutorial, if you're recording at like three in the morning and then you go back and record something, then it's like they, they see how dumb you really are. They're like, oh, you started at 3.05 in the morning and it was a 10-minute tutorial and you didn't get done until 7.06. So, <laughs> and so, so if you can cut that out and you can just say, well, this is the part I want you to look at, I find that to be really useful so i noticed that uh, i was looking at kazam and it has a broadcast feature can you like do youtube live or anything with kazam do you know oh maybe literally at the point that i wanted to do anything more than just capture the screen i would absolutely use OBS. yes okay Uh, and mm-hmm. here's why. In fact, and here, here's a good reason to use OBS, even if you don't want to do anything more complicated. Um, th- there is something to be said about singular workflows and learning where buttons and becoming familiar with tools that allow you to scale are. If you never used OBS for anything other than just recording your screen, no problem. It'll do that just fine. But if and when you decide you want to add more features, well, now you got that one learning set down. Rather, Whereas if you didn't do that, then you'd have to jump into an entirely new piece of stuff. Simple Screen Recorder is a really nice one. I, I think that Kazam is good too. Uh, I just like Simple Screen Recorder because of how quick it is to set up. If you have mm-hmm. never used one, it basically has a, a wizard guide. Like when you start using Simple Screen Recorder, it walks through like a multi-layer, uh, multi-page structure wizard. So like it, it'll cover, like if you don't want to do audio, you can use Simple Screen Recorder as well. You just check a little box that says no audio. And then you could do, uh, I th- I'm pretty sure it has like, 
specific regions and things like that too. But it goes through that process. So if you've not, you know, I'm not experienced, it makes it a lot easier for most people like that. Uh, whereas OBS, while is my favorite and it's fantastic and I love it, it's amazing. It's very complicated and to yeah, the and point of heavy. ridiculousness. It's very heavy. On, set it up for the first time. <laughs> yeah, it's very heavy on resources as well because in there have been many cases where I've had to use simple screen recorder in place of OBS when I am using a distro, say, on a laptop and I'm wanting to show something like gaming. What happens is laptops generally have integrated GPUs or they're sharing it with the CPU memory and running OBS on top of that ends up just bogging down the whole machine oh, yeah. and the game just stuttering like this, where a simple screen recorder is so light that it actually allows me, multiple times I've done this on laptops, record the screen of the game playing on that you know distro or whatever I'm recording a video for and not have that disturbance going on in the background. So if you're having performance issues with OBS because maybe you have some older hardware or hardware that's sharing resources, something like Simple Screen Recorder and probably Kazam 2, which I'm going to be checking out, uh, would be good options for you. Yeah, for sure. Nice. Cool. And I'm glad you're doing this, this one, Michael, because there's no way I'd pr how to pr pronounce half the stuff that's in that list. <laughs> but go ahead, my friend. So uh, this, this week we're doing the tips and tricks for drop-down terminals. Uh, a lot of people uh, are not really aware of, of drop-down terminals and how useful they are. Uh, terminals themselves, you know, some people are uh, not, you know, we talked about how the terminals can be scary and stuff like that, but drop-down terminals make the experience of using a terminal way easier and much nicer because it's so fast and, and they're they're much more convenient. So um, if you've not ever seen a drop-down terminal, essentially what it does is that you hit a shortcut on your keyboard and then it could be, you could put it wherever you want on your screen, but most of the time it's called drop down because it's at the top of your screen and then it just kind of comes down and right up and takes over a little bit of the space. And it's like pretty much always available and always there. And there's a lot of them that are like, uh, uh, there's a ton of them really. Um, Quake, Yaquake, Tilda, Tilex, Q-Terminal, and even some stuff for like Gnome Shell if you wanted for like a special extension and things like that. But there's there's all kinds of them. And what's really cool about it is that if you've ever used, if you ever played the games like uh, Unreal or Quake or anything like that, the yeah. concept of the drop-down terminal is pretty much directly taken from those games, to the, mm -hmm. even to the point where uh, Tilex has has uh, just adopted that entirely and just directly, you know, gone through with it and said uh, when they you, when you use the drop-down terminal feature of Tilex, it's called Quake mode. So, nice. like, <laughs> like, I appreciate that. Uh, but anyway, so which one's your favorite? Which one do you use in KDE all the time? Well, the reason I use it is because it's it's, it's cute based and it's fantastic and it's you quake. So, what is it? You quake. You quake. Yeah, it's it's you quake. Y a k u a k e. You quake. Yeah. Okay. And it's it's. Nice. I don't know why they have it named that, but I assume it's something about you know you or ya, and then quake spelled with a K. I don't know. Whatever. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's my favorite because it has all the benefits of, uh, brought them terminals, but also has all the, like it has, it's, it's essentially kind of like the, the combination of console, uh, from KDE with a drop down approach and you can get all the same, mm -hmm. most of the same benefits that are in console or in your quake. And I really like that because console is a very powerful terminal emulator. I just installed it. I like it's awesome. I like it. I I like it just because it it is the closest thing that I could find to Gwake on KDE that actually looks decent because Gwake looks all weird when you yeah. try and use it on. 
But also yeah. your Quake mm -hmm. can be modified. You can change the theming however you want. Like it's super customizable. And you can also have like, uh, you could change transparency. So if you want to drop down, that's still visible behind things. It, you can do that. Uh, there's tons of things about it. About I mean, most of these, uh, most drop down terminals have features like that. Uh, I just use Quake because it's the best one for the K for the Plasma experience. Uh, mm -hmm. But it has like tons of things. If you want to, you can even customize it so that your uh, your console and your Quake match. Or if you want to, you can have them separate and different. You know, you can have a transparent mm -hmm. Quake and a, a opaque a console, whatever. Uh, I like how the second yeah. you install it, it says, what shortcut key do you want? This is the default F12. Do you want to change it? Mm -hmm. Like immediately. Yeah, go try setting. and do that, though. Hold on. I did, try I, and do that. I didn't try to work. change it. I just did the F12 yeah. default. If you try it to change it, it messes up. It doesn't work. You have to accept the default, and then you got to go into it and then change it afterwards. Okay. That's, that's actually... Mm -hmm. yeah. I haven't actually tried your Quake. Change. I haven't installed your Quake in so long. I don't remember it, most of what the defaults are. Uh, I don't like. <laughs> I don't the know default what, if, F12. Exactly. The function keys already are predefined in other applications. I don't know why we'd use those. Whereas tilde, I've literally never used once in my life ever because I don't <laughs> speak Spanish. So right. I, I've just. I don't know. It just seems weird to me. But. Uh, mm. But but so I always change it to the tilde key. But you can't do that on startup. So don't try. Just uh, ignore that mm -hmm. option. And the, and the other benefit, I think, as well, with a drop-down terminal is sometimes, you, I don't know about you guys, but I've started up a terminal, run a command, and then moved it out of the way because I've got three screens. And then all of a sudden I thought, what's that terminal open for? And shut it down. <laughs> and, and my application that I was running is shut down. But right. with a drop-down, you run your command, and it immediately pops up out of the way. So you've lost no real estate on your, on your screens because you've left a terminal window open. And I know you can minimize them, but then it's still sitting there on the, on the system tray. Um, I don't think I've used uh, your Quake, but does it leave an icon on, or does it leave a notification on your tray at the bottom to no. say that it is up and running? So no. it really is. Can, it does save you real estate. You can, you, can, you can tell it to put an icon if you, you want choose. to. Yeah. yeah, But by default, mm -hmm. it's not yeah. there. And uh, yeah. I prefer it not being there. Um, but it's, mm -hmm. it is, if someone does want it, they can have it to be there. Uh, I, by default, I just it doesn't do it. And I like it not to be there because it's just I want it to save space. And I'm going to use a terminal a lot. Uh, I use a terminal doing the show multiple times because I run scripts through it. And having a drop down mm -hmm. is any time I need it, I can just you know drop it down, send the send the script, and and do it. And like that. That's such such a, a if you've never you know use a drop down terminal and you're just in the regular terminal consoles and stuff like that. Uh, definitely give it a shot because it will save you a lot of time and a lot of ha hassle and effort. And there, it's it's a very nice experience to use it. It makes it kind. I'm not going to say it makes terminals fun, but it makes it a lot more <laughs> efficient. I told my wife about it and we partied. Exactly. <laughs> it, was so, it was so fun. Um, I, combining the fish friendly interactive shell with this is just awesome. Yes. Like I, exactly. I love this man. Yeah, this is a good suggestion here. So I've got that all set up and installed. Well done, gents. All right, so that brings us to the end of another fantastic show. So, Ryan, can you let us know about our wonderful patrons? Well, a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting, watching, listening, however you do it. We really appreciate it. We've seen huge boosts in numbers recently. I think that might have to do with Noah. I'm not sure, or maybe it's just because <laughs> of my winning personality, but probably Noah. Uh, the show's been downloaded in over 101 countries, which is crazy because I could probably only name like 30. Um, so there's just amazing things happening. The numbers, as I was sharing with the guys, are just really 
skyrocketing and that just shows the support and people are loving the content and we appreciate that very, very much. So thank you for that. And also, you know, consider if you've not seen the YouTube version, subscribing to YouTube, you can see our ugly mugs. Well, most of us, some of us are prettier than others uh, on YouTube or downloading us through your favorite podcast uh, out there. Zeb, how can people get a hold of us? Well, it's the usual comments at destinationlinux.org. And you've seen in this particular episode alone uh, the number of times that we've referred um, to our emails. So your hints, your tips, your tricks, your comments, your suggestions, your testing us on what we've said during the show is really much appreciated. Um, and you can also go over to destinationlinux.org forward slash contact because you can get us on um, our Telegram group, Discord, Google Plus for a few months more because it's shutting down, Twitter, Mastodon, and I'm sure Michael's got at least another 10 different um, sort of social media applications out there that you and I have never even heard of. Quite a few. Uh, But also, uh, if you uh, make sure that you like that smash button, it's very important. It lets us know that you you enjoy the show. And uh, don't hit the down button because no one wants that. Uh, also, feel, be sure to share the show on social media. Noah, see, did that one perfect. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, you should also uh, check out our each individual show. We have not only we do this show together, we also have our own content. Uh, Noah does the Ask Noah show. Uh, Zeb, you can catch him streaming. The <laughs> exactly there you go. You can catch uh, Zeb streaming some uh, Euro Truck Simulator stuff like that on his channel. Uh, Ryan does a lot of videos for like hardware and things like that on his channel for DOS Geek. And you can check out my channel for sometimes I do, uh, rent, uh, you know, tech related, Linux related videos. Uh, but also you can check out the, uh, Linux, uh, this week in Linux uh, podcast that I do is there as well. So definitely check out those channels if you, if you have never uh, seen that before. And, uh, before we, before we move on, I wanted to make sure that you, if you, if you haven't heard we, we actually do this show, uh, live with our patrons so that if you wanted to uh, experience the show, you could you know join us with in in our in the Zoom chat with us and have and have a even a post show. We have a patron only post show that where we stay on for like a you know couple thirty minutes or so or whatever and have a chat with uh, all the patrons and stuff like that. And you only and it only costs one dollar to become a patron. So, That's darn near free, Michael. Exactly. So definitely, if you're if you're interested in it, you know check it out and go to destinationlinux.org/patreon to find out more. Nicely done. Nicely done. So, everybody, have a great week. And remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye.